July 3rd, 2020. I'm Rob Hoschild, and this is The Media Narrative, Season 3, during which I'll feature interviews with reporters from local, nonprofit, and other independent news outlets. In today's episode, I bring you a conversation I had recently with Julian Aguilar, a reporter for the nonprofit Texas Tribune. He's a native of El Paso and based there now, covering immigration and other issues from the border. Among the subjects we'll touch on, his reporting around a safe house for asylum seekers on the Mexican side of the border, the aftermath of the Walmart shooting in El Paso, and voting in Texas. Later in the program, I have some thoughts about Independence Day. As we jump into my chat with Julian Aguilar, he's talking about how he first started reporting on that safe house in Juarez, Mexico. The story came to me through through an attorney like every beat reporter they have their sources and sometimes you know stories will just come to them when you answer your phone right and he, this attorney very eager very young very good at what he does his name is eduardo beckett and he said hey you know i have some some clients that are in the outskirts of juarez that are waiting for their court hearings and just a little bit of background for for folks listening that aren't familiar with um, mpp the, the migrant protection protocols is the program the trump administration began on the California-Mexico border and then expanded everywhere else. So that requires asylum seekers, mainly from Central America and from Cuba, to wait in Mexico for their court hearings in, in American courts. If you were processed by CBP, you made your claim for asylum and they put you in the queue, for lack of a better term, and your first court appearance isn't for two and a half, three months, you're sent back to Mexico until the date of your American court appearance. So what this story focused on were folks that were waiting for their hearings that were also subjected to, to violent crimes in Mexico because some parts of northern Mexico are still violent, not only for Mexicans, but for asylum seekers, which criminals know they can't ask a lot of people for help, right? Mm -hmm. they, might, they might have folks um, in the United States or somewhere else they could send them money so they're subject to you know extortion and kidnapping. So this story, this attorney, Mr. Beckett, called and said, hey, you know, I got these folks out there. I'm going to talk to one of them and I'm going to try to bring one of them to the port of entry and try to get her into the United States. So we drove out there. It was a long drive. It was actually where the city limits pretty much ends. It was in, an, in a neighborhood that was built about 15 years ago, or maybe longer than that. I need to check on that. But it was a neighborhood that was built to house people that work in the factories in Mexico, the, the maquiladoras, right? Um, I want to say when we got there, maybe a third or a half of the houses were still being occupied. So it's something you see in a movie where you're driving down kind of a dirt road. You see sort of mangy dogs, you know, trying to get some food. You see houses that are vacant with broken windows or boarded up windows and spray paint. And then you see a house that looks, you know, to be in decent shape and people are living there. Hmm. So what happened was, you know, we interviewed these folks in the safe house, but it was... It was a very tense time uh, for MPP because a lot of the Central Americans, hundreds of stories by now, yeah. uh, documented stories of folks getting you know, beat up or extorted. Some folks even got killed there by criminal groups in Juarez. And the fact that they were from Central America didn't play too well with some of the Mexican folks. So one guy that is in the story, he was walking around trying to find a job and, and he got jumped and they beat him up and knocked out his teeth. And there was also just the, the political climate the attorney told me, he said, look, if the Mexican government really, really, really wanted to raise a stink right now, he doesn't have a license to practice in Mexico. So they could, you know, potentially put the squeeze on him for doing that. Even driving to the bridge with a woman who was seeking asylum, who was from Central America and had no residency status in Mexico. 
uh, technically he said, well, if we got pulled over, maybe they could accuse of, uh, accuse us of smuggling. I was like, we're just giving her a ride to the, to the bridge. He's like, mm -hmm. yeah, but you know, this is, uh, th these are some of the concerns, right? So that's just sort of added to the, to the tense situation there. Just the fact that unfortunately the Ciudad Juarez has seen a, an increase in homicides. Yeah. I think last year ended with more than 1500, uh, a number that hadn't been seen since, you know, the really, really bad drug war that raged from 2008 to 2011, where more than 10,000 people died. Wow. So did, yeah. did you feel unsafe at times when you were uh, reporting this story or other stories down there? I felt anxious because of, of the, the things that I just listed, of the things that could potentially happen. And granted, you know, those would be on the extreme sense, but things happen all the time. I, right. I didn't feel like I was on my own or I would be abandoned. I was with the photographer. I was with yep. the attorney. I was with, you know, three other people. So there's safety in numbers. It was broad daylight, you know, yeah. so that also sort of, you know, gives you a, a a sense of protection but yeah i mean it, it is a tense moment we have to realize that even though we're, we're reporters and i can say well my my mom was born here or i could speak the language i mean we're still guests in that country and they have their own roles one interesting thing is that most of the people in this story do not give their last names except for the woman you mentioned who went to the bridge i believe her name is berta arias yeah so but you did give their actual first names apparently and or maybe you didn't i don't know but there were first names in the story and you described this woman elena uh, or elena who ran the safe house and had a honduran husband and they lived across the street from the safe house and i was thinking might somebody be able to put together these details and figure out who they were what sort of fear do they have about talking to you they know this story is important you even talked in the story about her husband getting beat up by police because of suspicions they had about exactly this kind of thing so what what is it like to talk to them when they feel their own lives uh, may be in danger that's that's a great point and i think a lot of newsrooms are, are you know either had or are having discussions about about this topic I, i've covered immigration for a long time and i found people uh, regardless of their status are it, it just it's a case-by-case -case basis right a lot of the uh, the docker recipients a lot of the dreamers they say this is my first and last name this is what i do for a living this is how long i've been here some of those folks do not want to hide their identity at all and then again like you referenced some of these folks said okay we'll use my first name or my last name or, or don't use my name at all. You know that that's a little bit tougher because we still have to confirm that everything they're saying is is true, and and a lot of times you know these their actual case file backs up every, every you know the, the details that they say. But I am very very careful, as are a lot of other immigration reporters, to make sure that these folks know. Look, can I use your last name? Can I use your first name? And sometimes you know they'll they'll say, well, uh, for example, they'll, they'll just say, can you say I'm I'm from Central America, right? That you know that narrows down the region, but it doesn't give the specific country. Because these folks are, are very suspicious of retribution on both sides of the border, mm -hmm. uh, and as well they should be, right? We've seen, you know, these policies that have been enacted that, you know, there are more deterrence, I think, now under the administration. And the president is doing what he campaigned on, right? He said, yeah. you know, he's going to crack down on immigration. That's exactly what he's doing. Uh, agree with him or not, he's following through on that. But the policies, when they trickle down, are affecting these people's safety. So I'm very careful to say this is who I work for. This is where the publication is seen. But I'm also very quick to mention, look, uh, just because we're a Texas-based outfit, the Mexican press has picked up our stories. They've, you know, run them in Spanish and they, they don't change them. So there is a chance that certain, you know, that certain audiences could see this. So I make sure that they're okay with every single aspect. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, a lot of times when I, you know, communicate with them again, for a follow-up story, I'll ask them if they're still okay with the same policy. Sometimes they'll reach out via a lawyer or somebody else and have second thoughts after the interview and say, hey, 
could you not use my full name? Could you use only my, my first name or my middle name? Things like that. So there's, there's not one simple question that they answer and you say, okay, I have the green light. You have to explain so many different circumstances. It would break my heart if a story that I wrote led to somebody um, being hurt. You know, whether, yeah. whether, whether it's a crime story and, you know, random neighborhood USA or whether it's an immigration story from northern Mexico. I mean, I, I don't, it would just, it would just be heartbreaking. So we have to be very, very careful. Yeah. At that safe house, as far as you know, is everyone that you spoke to in the story still there? Has anyone succeeded in getting asylum granted? One of the people in question that I, that I mentioned and I know has given up and gone back. Mm. And back to Honduras. Uh, Back to, well, there was another person there that went back to uh, Central America, I think Honduras, but I'd, I'd have to go back and check yep. my notes. But yeah, no, I mean, this is this is a common phenomenon, right? I mean, I was I was just talking to a, a colleague about another story that we worked on where a, a family from El Salvador gave up and, and went back, whether they landed back in, in Mexico, whether they, you know, in the interior somewhere and decided to try to make a living there, whether they went back to Central America or somewhere else. But you see a lot of that. And, be, and I think a lot of folks can argue that that's the administration's goal, right, is to make it so hard to achieve asylum that you just throw your hands up and say, you know what, I'm just going to go back home. I'll tough it out. And this is after folks have spent, you know, thousands of dollars or sold, you know, their property or whatever to, to be able to get up north to, to the Mexican cities. At one point during our conversation, I told Julian about a project I had worked on. I interviewed an attorney and child advocate who had observed the brutal state of things at Texas detention centers, including one in Clint, Texas, where very young children are being held as their families await asylum proceedings. That interview appears as a nonfiction comic, one of several stories in a just-released compilation. More on that later. The Clint facility was in the press a lot because of the horrible conditions, as, as you mentioned. So what Border Patrol did after all that is that they, they built a detention facility not too far from where I am here in Central El Paso on the northeast side at a Border Patrol uh, station there to to house more people, right? But it's it's hard to tell exactly what's going on inside the Border Patrol facilities because those are temporary facilities, right, before you're transferred into ICE custody and because the numbers have gone down so much and because another issue is because the administration has enacted the, the Title 42 response. So what they're doing now is, is people that are apprehended between the ports of entry by Border Patrol, they're almost immediately returned within a couple hours hmm. in some cases. Yeah. So And, and Border Patrol did that and said, look, you guys are complaining that you don't want a lot of people in small spaces during the COVID pandemic. If we apprehend these people and put them in a border patrol facility, that's exactly what we're going to do. So, which is a fair argument, right? You said, look, you don't want people, in, you know, a lot of people in a COVID place, so we're going to send them back. But the flip side is there are allegations that they're completely denying due process to these folks. They're not yeah. letting them apply for asylum at all. Instead, they're just doing these automatic returns. So it's which side do you fall on? Do you send them back to Mexico where there's also a pandemic, right? Or do you process them as you would and, you know, risk a lot of people in the same the same sort of unit? But the, the big story right now is just what's going on in ICE detention yeah. with respect to COVID, not only for the, the detainees there, but also for the employees. The ICE union actually joined teams with immigration attorneys and some immigration judges when they asked for MPP to be postponed because, you know, they were going to court, they were tra transporting these folks. They were at risk of getting sick and they were at risk of getting these folks sick if they were asymptomatic. So the same way COVID has affected our ability to go to the grocery store or to watch sports or to go to a concert, uh, it's the same exact way with the correctional system and the immigration detention system, I think. A couple other things I want to ask about El Paso, and I'm not sure how closely you followed all of these yourself in your reporting, 
But the El Paso chief of police, Greg Allen, back in 2016, called Black Lives Matter a, quote, radical hate group. I am wondering, because people in the last few days have been calling for his dismissal in El Paso, what's your take on the protests there and the future of policing in El Paso? I'll start with the protests. So El Paso had a, a, a rather large protest, and it was what you saw a, across the country, right? I mean, it was, it, was at the, it was at Memorial Park here in central El Paso, and they marched down to the police station. And, and I say similar to what happened in other parts of the country because it seemed peaceful during the day, and then once you know, the sun went down, you did have uh, tear gas being lobbed at some of these protesters. You did have beanbags you know, being fired. You know, there was the CBP helicopter that was on on duty that day to help out the police. It was hovering over the park for hours. It did turn into a situation where people were, were frustrated, you know, and I, I talked to some folks that were out there and they said, look, this is a city that's still that's still healing right after the, the Walmart shooting. So I talked to some folks there and said, look, you know, the, the, the black community was here for El Paso when that happened, we're gonna stand in support with them. So there was a lot of different, you know, storylines going on, but yeah, unfortunately later in the day that there were some folks that they got rowdy and the police pushed back, the, you know, a lot of people think the police, police overreacted. I saw some police go into the crowd that, that seemed to be an, an unprovoked response. So it was similar to what played out everywhere. But the same question about, about Chief Allen. Yeah, he did, he did say that in 2016, and that's coming back. That's obviously resurfing now. There is some, some push to do that. I, I don't know how much traction it would gain with, with city council, honestly. Um, El Paso's a town that has a lot of uh, law enforcement is a major employer. I mean, granted, a lot of that is at the federal level with CBP and Border Patrol. But, you know, the same respect that some folks have for, for those officers, you know, it's, it's matched at the local level, the Paso Police Department. And I say that because folks on the more conservative side are saying, you guys are crazy for trying to defund the police. We need law and order, so they're going to have a rally there. It's a conversation. I'm sure some folks on city council will discuss it. My gut feeling is right now the city council probably is worried about its you know $100 million revenue shortfall and the lack of bridge revenues and things like that. They might sort of downplay the situation here with police and residents that it's not as tense as it is in other cities. But I think the, the fact that there is calls for the, for the police chief to resign, or at least, you know, bringing up his prior record is going to is going to get some discussion at city council. I would I'd be ignorant of me to, to sort of predict where it's going to go. But yeah, you're exactly right. This is like other big cities. This is in, in the spotlight now here, too. You, you mentioned while you were describing that how the, the shooting that happened at the Walmart last year in El Paso kind of resonated during those protests. This guy drove 10 hours from another part of Texas. He, he wrote that he wanted to massacre Mexicans and immigrants, I believe. And, uh, and then 22 people died at that Walmart. How is that continuing to affect the people in El Paso? And what's the status of the case against the accused? The, the, the case is pending in state court and federal court. In February, the uh, Justice Department announced more than 90 charges, hate crime charges against this individual. It's the, the county is still pursuing the, the, their state charges. I, I think it was in February after the federal charges were announced. I asked the district attorney, uh, an outgoing district attorney who decided not to run for re-election, unrelated to, to anything that happened in the city. He's just been in there for so long. So I asked him, I said, why not hand the, the case over to the federal government? You know, El Paso is going to lose a lot of money on this case. And this was pre-COVID, right? And he, he actually said he was offended that I asked the question. He said, look, this is, this is my jurisdiction. This is our state. We're going to prosecute him. And I said, you know. And afterwards, he said, it's a fair question because people have been raising that, right? I mean, let the feds take it over. They have, you know, a lot more money than the county government does. Yeah. So long, 
long answer is that, or I'm sorry, short answer to, <laughs> is that it's still, it's still, it's still pending, and it's, you know, it's, it's unclear how it's gonna, how it's gonna move on both tracks, right? I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not a, a, a legal scholar, but I'm not sure, you know, if the state would proceed with the murder charges first, and then the feds would go with the hate crime charges, it would be simultaneous. Mm-hmm. So, but that's something that people are watching, and you know, we're we're coming up on the anniversary here in a couple months, and the FBI has already warns residents like look we're gonna get a lot of kooks out there that are you know making threats online or you know this always happens leading up to the anniversary of of a horrible event like this right so we're starting to see a little bit like that but i I think it really 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 brought the city together i was really proud of my hometown Mm -hmm. it was it was personal for a lot of folks from el paso that are reporters in el paso i mean you know the the shooting took place about three blocks away from where i went to high school you know it was it was a neighborhood that we all know very well I think the response to COVID sort of might have uh, weakened those those tight bonds that the city had, right? Because like in other large cities, you had folks who were saying it's overblown and, you know, we need to go back to work. And you have people saying, no, stay inside. You know, we got it. We're all in this together. So I saw a little a little bit of, of that sort of unity splinter during COVID. But I think for the but I think for the most part, with respect to, to Walmart, you know, people were, were less concerned with the politics of it than they were just about being there for for one another. And, and you're, you're still seeing that. I think people are, are moving on, thankfully, because it was a horrible situation. But I think you're going to see a lot of these feelings resurface now that we're coming up to the one year anniversary. Another critical issue in Texas, as it is everywhere, is the debate around fair elections. It's a story Julian Aguilar has been covering for years. I covered voter ID when it, you know from 2011 to when it was passed. I, I passed that torch on my daily coverage, but you know people are, are folks are still upset about voter ID here in Texas. You know, so that the, that's a, it's always an issue. There's always folks that say, "Look, you know, I wasn't able to vote for X, Y, Z," and, and they're probably right. You know, there's no reason to believe that they that they're just lying just to be political about it. So they're, they're always going to get some scuttle. But what what the biggest issue now, the most recent issue, and my colleague Alexa Uda has written extensively about this, is the mail-in ballots. There was a big push to expand mail-in balloting because of the COVID scare, right? But the the Texas Attorney General and the Texas Supreme Court pretty much, you know, is keeping that at bay for now. They ruled that no, you can't just dramatically expand, you know, mail-in ballot access. So, and that's again, when I say there's always going to be suspicions and arguments, that's the that's one of the the big red herrings, right? Or what some people say is a red herring is like, oh no, that's where the fraud is. And people say no, that's where it's safe is, and that's what we see playing out right now. With, yeah. I mean, at the federal level, state level, and the local level. So I'm sure those issues will reemerge. I think people here might just be concerned about overall turnout, right? I mean, El Paso's, Texas overall, as far as voter turnout, it's near the bottom. It's not at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, unfortunately, that spreads out to the cities. But like you mentioned, maybe all these issues, maybe, you know, maybe the gun issue after the shooting, maybe the immigration issue after El Paso has been ground zero for a lot of these policies, you know, maybe how the local municipalities dealt with the COVID spread and now the protest over what what some see as, you know, police, uh, abuse of police power, you know, maybe those will all coalesce. And, you know, I know we're not that far out, but we still have some time for some of these undecideds to say, oh, well, maybe I don't want to go that way. Maybe I'm going to go this way. So, Well, I'm glad you and your colleagues are working on all of this and reporting it out to the rest of us. And I'm also just want to ask what the... You know, you look at the arc of your own career. You worked for community print newspapers, local newspapers. Now you're with a, an online news organization. There is no print. Are you feeling secure in the future of the of the work you're doing as a journalist? What do you see happening in terms of the future of local and community journalism, independent journalism? 
I think, first of all, the, pr the press is never going away. You know, I mean, you know, if, if there's an argument on one side to defund the police, you know, it could be a similar argument to say, let's just get rid of the First Amendment, you know, right. get rid of fake news. I, I don't think that's going to happen. And I've been actually, I've been I've been inspired by what I've seen at, at the local and state level. For example, um, Bob Moore, the former editor of El Paso Times, he started El Paso Matters, which is a, you know, it's it's you know, uber focused on local news. It's online only. It's a nonprofit. And, I, you know, I think the more examples of this that we see and models like the Tribune, uh, I think that bodes well. R right now, I will concede that it, when so many of my colleagues at other publications are either being furloughed or laid off, I'm, I'm keeping my head down. I'm lucky to have a job. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, that's I'm very, very grateful. You know, I'm very, very grateful for that. You know, I can I can bellyache about, oh, I can't go to Juarez or I got to work from home or I don't have this, that or the other. But at the end of the day, I have a job and I'm grateful for it. So that's what I'll say in, in this near term. But, you know, when the smoke clears and we start looking at, at, you know, down the road, you know, I mean, you've seen reports about, you know, subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times, you know, increase because of the coverage and things like right. that. So even with this backlash against mainstream media or, or even non mainstream media, just media in general, I think the other side of the coin is that more people are realizing that, that news is important and they're, they're sort of starting to invest more. So I think once the economy starts to pick up, when that is, is anybody's guess. But I think I think it bodes well. The, the Texas Tribune model is one that's worked. And from what I understand right now, you know, I, I got up a, a conference call earlier before this one with my editors. And as long as they didn't say, hey, man, we're going to have to furlough you. You're out of a job. I'm just going to cross my fingers that that's the way we stay. So. I hope it stays that way. Uh, folks can read your work, Julian, at uh, texastribune.org. O-R-G. O-R-G. Okay. Thanks so much, Julian, for the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Julian Aguilar is the immigration and border security reporter for the Texas Tribune, a member-supported digital nonprofit media organization covering every corner of the second largest state in the nation, texastribune.org. The collection of graphic nonfiction I mentioned earlier features a story I produced with three talented colleagues. It's one of several comics portraying the U.S. crackdown on immigration. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's called Border Rx, A Crisis in Graphic Detail. This weekend, we mark the 244th birthday of the United States of America. And if you found a traditional way to safely celebrate with family or friends, maybe fireworks, parades, barbecues, that's great. But perhaps this is also the perfect time for some national self-reflection. I mean, who are we as a nation right now? We used to be a global leader and a beacon for civil rights and social justice. The truth is, the idea of being a beacon for freedom, as we have been recently reminded, is far from the true story. Consider the downright bizarro nature of our founding. The Declaration of Independence proclaims that all men are created equal. But about a decade later, those same founders enacted a U.S. Constitution explicitly stating that if you had black skin, well, you weren't quite equal. You were more like 60% of a person with white skin. There are many other aspects to U.S. history and contemporary life ripe for reevaluation. And I'm here asking myself, what is patriotism today? For a start at answering that, I'll turn to the words of Nicole Hannah-Jones from last week's New York Times. She writes, Citizens don't inherit 
just the glory of their nation, but its wrongs too. A truly great country does not ignore or excuse its sins. It confronts them and then works to make them right. If we are to be redeemed, if we are to live up to the magnificent ideals upon which we were founded, we must do what is just. Nicole Hannah-Jones, New York Times, June 24th. We'll take it out now with some music from Mexico. After my interview with Julian Aguilar, I asked him about important musicians from his region, and he mentioned Juan Gabriel, who is to some people the Willie Nelson of Northern Mexico. Hasta que te conocí. Subscribe and sign up for the newsletter at themedianarrative.com. Until next time, I'm Rob.